Well, it is a great uh, privilege to be able to even share with you right now and to talk about what we want to talk about. Because when it comes to focus and, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about how to follow through, right, on our good intentions. And that's kind of where we've been. And about confronting that real tendency that we all have to lose momentum as we sort of can drop back into an unhealthy place. It's not uncommon, I think we all know it, but by the end of January, that a lot of good intentions have already started either dying or have been left behind, right? I mean, it's notorious, uh, New Year's resolutions that get left behind. The bottom line is it's it's, it really is not, maybe I won't say unhealthy, but it's just, it's not that easy to sustain focus. It's one of the challenges we have, which is why we want to sit with the theme. It's normal to drift. That's the normal thing, to drift. And I would like to challenge that and, and encourage us, and the very word encourage includes the idea of courage, to face certain things, to think about certain things more deeply. We live in a culture that, that and I'm a part of it as, as all of us are, that tends to live life more on the surface. But the Lord invites us to go deeper into our hearts and into the soul of things. And so we're going to try to do that. We're going to try to push forward into some things. And I want to I look at a particular portion of Scripture at the time of the writing that, of the words that we're about to read. The great apostle Paul was faced with the reality, and you can see it there. We're going to look at it together at Timothy. But he was faced with the reality that his days on earth were coming to a close. He knew he was going to be executed by the decree of a man who could only be described as a raving lunatic, uh, the fifth emperor of Rome, notorious, infamous Nero, who was noted for his unique atrocities that he perpetuated uh, against uh, a group that he saw as an easy out. And uh, he, he blamed the fire on Ro uh, in Rome that many believe he started on, on these followers of Christos. And uh, he had a lot of... A lot of Believers in Jesus hung, crucified. Some of them he had dipped in oil and he used them as human torches in his garden for parties. But Paul is operating in that environment and um, these are his concluding words because he knows he's about to be executed. And these are his concluding words to his protege, his son, as it were. Not literal son, but his son of the faith. The, the two books to, that are in the New Testament that are written to Timothy are written by Paul to Timothy, who is a young pastor. He's also someone that Paul has mentored and he loves. He's, interestingly enough, a, a, a young man of different disposition than Paul. He seems to have a more gentle disposition to him. And part of the reason why you'll, you'll see at times Paul's encouraging him not to allow his fears to get the best of him instead to be courageous, because probably Timothy struggled with his fears. He, remember, that's who he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, Timothy, but of power and of love and, and of soundness of mind. How many things are won and lost in the mind? And so um, he knows he won't see him again in this life. And so it makes what we're about to read even more powerful, because it's not only his final words to his young son of the faith, but it's also a kind of a summary of how he sees his life. And sort of his closing self-assessment. So let's look at it together. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I just want to read through it. He says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. 
He says, I want you to preach the word of God, Timothy. I want you to be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. I don't want you to be a person who only, you know, speaks about Jesus when it's easy to do so. Because it may not always be that way. And I want you to be courageous enough to speak whether it, it's an easy thing to do or a hard thing to do. Don't be ashamed of him, okay? And, you know, I remind her what Jesus said about John the Baptist. He was not a reed blowing with the wind, right? He says, I want you to patiently, as you be a courageous proclaimer, I want you to patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. Here are the primary responsibilities of a faithful pastor. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. No, look at this. They will follow their own desires, and they'll look for people, teachers, who actually tell them whatever they want, their itching ears want to hear, and I really do believe it is easy to find teachers who will tell us what we want to hear, who will shift the gospel to suit the times. I understand that. Adaptability is important, but not redefining the gospel. They will, according to Paul, reject the truth, chase after, after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Clarity of mind is a gift. Do not be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Paul was a man who had trained himself to be unafraid of suffering, which is not easy. In the apostles' case, it was suffering for the Lord. He, his body was a walking testimony to his suffering. He had been beaten. He had been stoned with rocks. He'd been left for dead. He had his back ripped. I mean, the guy was scarred beyond, you know, he bore the scars. But suffering of any kind is hard. And uh, some of us, honestly, we're suffering. I know not everybody is, but some of us came in here and we were hurting. And people may not even know it. We may be sitting next to someone who's suffering, struggling, hurting, wounded. Um, may God's grace and mercy sustain. We're going to talk about this. Anyway, work at telling others the good news. Fully carry out the ministry God has given you. As for me, he look at what he says. I'm already been poured out as an offering to God. I, I'm as good as dead and I'm ready to go. The time of my death is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have remained faithful. I've kept the... And now the prize awaits me. It's the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And, and the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. So it's clear from this passage that Paul was looking back as well as ahead, that he was reflecting back on the long arc of his life and how he had fulfilled his calling. So remember, he had not, now I think many of us know this, I know not everybody does, but he had not always followed Jesus. I think we understand. In fact, there was a time when he vehemently opposed him. I mean, he really, he hated Jesus. He hated the way of Jesus. He hated anybody who was associated with Jesus. In fact, he was the one who wanted to hunt them down. He wanted them silenced, whatever. He saw them as a threat, as a problem, and they needed to be dealt with. Fanatics who needed to be silenced. And there was that day, a day in his life, though, when everything changed. And it changed the world, by the way, the day he changed. Look, I put the little piece of it in in the handouts from Acts 9. It says, And Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked letters, permission, legal permission for him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that was the way, the way was how the early followers of Jesus were described, the way of Jesus, the way of the Nazarene. 
whether they were men or women, didn't matter. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he journeyed, he came, as he did, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you instinctively? Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And then Jesus says this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, that's a word we don't use a lot. That's the older, older language. So what is a goad? A goad was a stick, a, a rod. It, was, it usually had a little something sharp at the end of it. Sometimes it was like a thorn. But it, it was designed to move an animal forward or a spur, something that caused discomfort. The picture is of resistance, of stubbornness. Of, the Lord is saying something to him. He's saying something that he's saying to Paul, that he may say to us sometimes, it's hard for you to fight against me. Don't fight against me in your life. Don't fight against me. From that day forward, Paul then saw lived a life of singular focus, and he's a model for anyone who would sincerely follow Jesus. In fact, later on to the church at Corinth, he would write these words. I just had them put them up real quick. He said, for I'm the least of the apostles. Truth is, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. We just read about that. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me has not been in vain. The truth is I've labored more abundantly than them all. But even that I cannot take credit for because truly it's not even me, but it's God's grace that it has even allowed me to do that. So the great, this is what I was trying to lay out. Okay, foundationally. The great apostle lived with tenacity. He lived with singleness of mind. He lived with tremendous focus. If that is the case, then Paul, we know, because this is what we also know, is that he had a shift in the middle of his life. That's what we're talking about. Early middle of his life, he has this shift that we just read about, and he's captured by Christ. And it's a fascinating phrase because now at the end of his journey, he's in a different type of captivity. But he could... It's what we just read. He could declare that he, he had run the race that he was supposed to run. He, 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 could, he, had a, he had a degree of satisfaction that he had completed his assignment and, and that now that he was at the end, he felt like he had, if I can put it this way, <clears throat> he had sang his, his Jesus song, so to speak. And I really think we all have a song to sing for the Lord. Uh, some of us have a life. We have a life song and we have seasonal songs. So part of what I want us to wrestle with a little bit is, what is the song he wants us to sing? Now, you know, I know I'm never going to get a chance to sing in the band, right? It's just like, it was pretty clear to me, there's no room for me in the band, right? It's not going to happen. But we all have a song to sing. And I have personally found that in the great fellowship of the wounded, they sound most beautiful when we sing in our suffering and our disappointment. I think the most beautiful songs we ever sing to the Lord are the ones sung in our hurt. And sometimes I've learned that the questioning hurting place is often the place of the greatest grace of God. There was an, in, it was an interesting you know, situation that happened with Paul earlier in his ministry life. In Acts 16, Paul and his ministry partner Silas in this Roman colony were arrested unjustly and thrown into prison. And they were beat up, they were bloody, they were brought down into the lowest part of the prison. 
And again, the picture is of them just really racked with pain. They're bound up in a stocks, body bent over. Their backs are bloody. They've been beat up. They can't even fix The place stinks. It smells like it's damp. It's dark. It's human waste. It's awful. And they're in this place, and all they've done is tried to represent Jesus. They thought they were doing what he wanted them to do, and this is what happens. And one of the most remarkable things that's described is that in the middle of that place, while they're there at the midnight hour, and again, they, all they had done was try to do what God wanted them to do, and this is what they get? But it says in the midnight hour, they began to sing. And they sang songs of praise and hymns in their hurt. And it's always, I mean, I see that and I go, and then what says an earthquake comes. And there's something powerful because God has songs for us to sing in the midnight hour. And sometimes the most powerful things we can ever see, they were not just resigned. It's one thing to be resigned and say, well, that's just the way it goes. That's better than, I can't believe you would do this to me. Where are you? We were doing what you wanted, and this is what we get. You, you, are, you, you don't fulfill your part of the bargain. They didn't say that. They, were also, they, they, were, they weren't also resigned, though. They were neither accusatory nor were they resigned. Like, well, this is just the way it is. I'll have to endure. There was a third thing. They began to praise him in their pain. They began to sing a song, a song that he gave them. He sang a song in the midnight hour, and it altered the, you know what? The songs that we sing in our hurt to the Lord will alter the terrain of our soul. It's what they do. And it was powerful because as they sang, and again, I think we all have songs to sing. I think that, I think God gives us songs to sing. And uh, unique races to run. It may not be noticed, it may not be understood, it may not be applauded, but they're essential because of the songs he's given to us. And it's going to require our courage for some of us to sing them. Some of you are singing your songs courageously. And uh, I honor you in Jesus. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Sing on, sing on, because sometimes it's harder than anyone ever knows to keep on singing your Jesus song. But he is with us. I'll make a slight shift here. C.S. Lewis said, every person is composed of a few themes. And when I think of themes, I think of those things that God has placed closest to our heart. Let's call it the, the place where our gifts and our passions intersect. And I think part of our job as followers of Jesus is to represent him well. And, and part of doing that means that we're going to develop and concentrate on the few primary themes that he has placed closest to our heart. And so we have been given this invitation to think about from a spiritual context what our strengths and our gifts are. So the idea is here. I'm thinking about what are the songs that he has for us to sing and what are the themes that he has for us to develop in our lives. Now, how do we do that? Because those are the key, this, to me, those are keys to a focused, focused living. Now, I'm going to try to take that from the passage to the concept to the practical. So here it goes. Firstly, let's think about what this means. I think one of the things God wants us to do is identify, again, focus living. He wants us to identify our themes, our life themes. 
and commit ourselves to developing them. Now, there might be, for some of us, the idea of a life theme might be too big, so maybe it's a seasonal theme. But they have to do with the things that a majority of our focus should be going to. Unless the Lord reveals to us otherwise, we should usually soar with our strengths and try to minimize our weakness. I talk to my kids, I say, it's important to try to identify your strengths. Throw a majority of, your, of the weight of your life into your strengths, into your gifts. Manage the weakness, soar with the strength. Manage the weakness, soar with the strength. God gives us gifts. Um, I might call them high leverage uh, aspects of life that we've been given to honor God with and bless others with. So that there are things that make us uniquely who we are that God has given us to honor him with and to bless others with. Some, someone described that once as um, the value of limiting the, our life palette. Uh, so that, and that the idea is that when we do that, we're less stressed and more energized. So, so think, what am I talking about? Like, so I'm saying, some of us are more inclined to, we, we really, things like, in, honestly, when we serve others, it, it seriously brings life to us. Others of us, we, we, we get blessed when we lead. For others of us, it has to do with artistic expression. Some of us, it might have to do with showing mercy, um, listening. Some of us, it's in praying. Some of us, it's in giving. Honestly, there's so many different things uh, that we can do that the list is long, and that list may shift as, as our life shifts. But that's why I talk about seasonal themes, but I really think that part of what some of us need to be doing is thinking, Lord, what is, what is the song you have for me to sing at this time in my life? What would that look like in relation to the circumstances that I'm in? And then also, what are the themes in my life that you're asking me to focus in and develop? What are the high leverage intersections between my gifts and my passions that you've planted inside of me? See, this is very different. This means I am moving off of a defensive approach to life that is passive and drifting into a, into a and I mean this in, a, in the best sense of the word, into a, a more intentional pursuit of cultivation. And we'll talk about that in, in a second under, the, under this next piece here, which is this, is that we need to focus then on the first things as defined by Jesus. Now, Jesus taught us not to live our lives in lopsided pursuit of money, wealth, power, prestige, possessions. We get that. I think we do, even though I know that a lot of us do think of our success based around what Jesus called the abundance of the things that we possess, which is only temporary since none of it will go with us when we leave this life, but we know that it contributes to the quality of our life. And since that's the case, we can get caught up in the pursuit of things that cannot ultimately satisfy our heart, soul, and the yearning that God put in us to know him and to have true life. So the symbols of life can never bring life. They're just tokens that may or may make us feel better for a period of time, but they can't get at the deepest part of who we are. That's because every one of us has a peace that only God can fill. But it's easy to get lost in the pursuit of things, the pursuit of titles, the pursuit of promotions, the pursuit of, you know, whatever. It's also, in our culture right now, it's really easy to get stuck in trivial pursuit because we are just immersed, if we haven't noticed it, with all kinds of entertainment, options, um, technology now has opened up opportunity, if we can call it that, I think we can, 
but every part of our day could be filled constantly. I'm part of this. With every, if we're not careful, every moment that we don't have something going on, we'll, we can turn something on and start going through something, playing a game on something. It's just nonstop. We are inundated with noise. And you can't hear God well in noisy places. And it, what I mean by that is that some, listen, I'm, I walk, because this is my main place where I'm at, is in the mission, is the church. I walk around the neighborhood. I've watched it change now since I was, you know, teenager where I remember first, right? So I've watched it through a number of iterations. One of the things I can tell you is I've never seen it quite like it is now. I mean, I walked around Valencia Street when it, it was dangerous. I mean, really dangerous. And um, now it's, it's, it's like, a, okay, the reason I'm saying what I'm about to say, <laughs> because because San Francisco is kind of like a playground right now. And people all over the world want to be here because there's deals to be made, money to be made. It's a different kind of a gold rush, which is interesting that a city can continue its characteristic as the years and decades go by. It's a place where deals are made, where people come from all over, you know, and will risk everything and oftentimes get very beat up and wounded as they leave. The truth is, though, I've watched what's happening. There are so many who are pursuing things that cannot satisfy. It's trivial pursuit on steroids, <laughs> dressed in the veneer of prosperity and opportunity. But not a lot of attention is being given to the things that truly matter. For Jesus said, seek first what is right in the eyes of God. All these other things will fall into place. Do not lay up for ourselves treasures in this earth where moth and rust and thieves, you know, corrupt, thieves break in and steal it. Stocks, the economy turns, the world shifts, and everything we've acquired is lost. Don't base it on those things. Be rich towards God. Let your soul be rich towards God. Focus on the first things. And so in an era of trivial pursuits where we can fill every aspect of our life with something to do, something to entertain us, something to watch on demand, when we want it, where we want it, all the time, anywhere, you name it, it can happen. We have to exercise more discipline to live a focused life that is going to produce something at a deep level in our soul that's going to actually have an impact on the critical relationships in our lives. Because God cares about the health of the people who claim to know him and love him. He loves everybody. But the people who represent his heart, he wants us not to just get caught up with the, the the, if you will, the movement of culture, even though we're a part of it, he wants us to learn how to operate as one apart while we are even a part of it, which means we've got to be intentional. Remember what we said last week? Uh, the quote, uh, uh, anything less than a, an intentional commitment, a conscious commitment to the important is an unconscious commitment to the unimportant. Anything less than a conscious commitment to the important is an unconscious commitment to the unimportant. What that means is we have to choose to be intentional about how we utilize what we just sang about, our time, and how we're spending this gift of life. And I'm certainly not anti, by any means, uh, enjoying things. I'm not. But I do say that we need to work extra hard in light of the world that we're living in right now to pay attention to the first things. And that means we can't do everything. 
that a choice, and if we don't choose to do the, un, the important, we will drift into a life dominated by the unimportant because that's the cultural tide. The end of our day, it won't matter what we watched. It won't matter. And it won't matter how much we acquire. What will matter is did we follow the Lord in our lives and did we love the people we were given most to love and did we try to extend that out? Love the Lord your God, Jesus said, with all of your heart, his heart, all your soul, mind and strength. You were made for it. And love your neighbor as yourself. The circle of our love extended out. Okay, thirdly, another way to live focused, keep perspective. This is actually tied into what we just shared. But keeping perspective is an important aspect of the focused life. Why? Because the tendency, especially when things go wrong, not exclusively, but especially when things go wrong, is to overreact. Have you ever noticed that? And when we overreact, someone said, it was Fosdick who said, overreacting is like burning down your own house to get rid of a rat. <laughs> like, that's kind of like an overreact, wouldn't you say? You got rid of the rat, but you burned the whole house down. And that's what some people approach relational problems. I want to get rid of the rat, so I'm going to burn the whole house down to do it. Sometimes the problem, the bigger problem, is not the problem. It's the way we're allowing the problem to define us. The real problem is not the act. It's the react. That's the real problem. Because we're making matters worse. We're losing our focus. This, too, I have done. A lesson I took to heart when I was recovering after my vocal surgery, and I just wasn't in a good place. I wasn't exactly sure how things were going to play out. I was feeling discouraged. Um, there was a couple of other things that were going on. I, I don't want to sound hyper-spiritual here. Actually, I think that's the wrong way to say it. I don't want to sound hyper-unspiritual right here because one of the things I think is important to do when you're under... Remember, okay... Ended last week by saying, if you're going to go through it, you might as well grow through it. And one of the things I've told a few people, more than a few people since I've been back, is I've listened to them and shared, sharing their hurt or wound or struggle. And sometimes I've watched people who are very easy on themselves, too easy on themselves. But most of the time, we're too hard on ourselves. I know I'm running a risk there, but sometimes what the Lord would say to us, I may submit it is be patient with this process. Don't be in a hurry to let me do what I need to do. There's some things I want to work in you, and there's some things I want to work out of you. Sometimes the word is this simple. Be gentle on yourself. Stop it. There's a lady, a great lady, who has known suffering, who goes to our church. And I'm hoping she'll share again before the year is out. She's an amazing example of what it means to endure. And she said this, and I remember hearing it in one of the messages she shared. She said, it's going to be okay. She says, this is my mantra. It's going to be okay. And if it's not okay, it's still okay. Because it's grace is sufficient. It's going to be okay. And if it's not okay, it's still okay. Because his grace is sufficient. Lastly, leads right into it. Periodically, we just need to ask God for a fresh touch of grace. This is the invitation of the focused life. So when pe passion is lacking, 
Patience is waning. Pressure is mounting. Passion is lacking. Patience is waning. Pressure is mounting. I don't know which one is the bigger issue for any of us. Maybe none. Maybe we lost our passion somewhere. We just kind of worn down, tired, weary. Maybe some of us, our patience is really hard for us. We're just like, how long does this going to go on? When do I get out of this thing? When does this change? For others of us, we feel enormous pressure. Some of it may be self-imposed. Other of it is just the way our life is structured. What is it? Passion. Patience, pressure. If, pe- if pressure is mounting, one thing I always learned, I've learned, I, th- I knew it theoretically, but I really got it in a different way. When we're struggling with stuff, don't run away from God. Run to him. See, that goes back to the in the prison moment when you're sitting there going, why is this happening to me? All I did was what you wanted me to do. Now, sometimes we go, no, I know I didn't do what you wanted me to do, and that's at least in part of the reason why this is happening. What I don't, there are sometimes we have no clue. Did I do something? Did I not do something? Is God trying to teach me? Is this the Lord? Is this the enemy? Is this the, what's going on? I don't know. Is it a mixture of everything? Possibly. Somewhere down the road, we'll explore that more. We'll explore the why and what to do in the why. How do I see this? How do I think about this suffering? How do I walk through it? Those are different questions. One thing I know, the grace of God is always near to us. My favorite teaching of Jesus is the parable of the prodigal son. And the son, if you remember, is the lost boy runs home. He is weak, beaten. He's lost everything. He's the picture of failure and he comes despairing but desperate and he gets enveloped in the father's love at this place of greatest shame he feels the greatest love it is the way of jesus he invites us into his grace don't run from his embrace it's okay Gentle, patient, sing the song, learn the song, learn the song, learn the song, and sing it, sing it by his grace. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to submit, to to just share, to, to be able to have the privilege of representing your heart. And I ask that you would you would create good things, that life would flow in places where, if I can put it this way, death has reigned. That even in places of, of despair, there would be the reminder of your grace, that it's going to be okay. And even if it's not okay, it's going to be okay because you're with us. Your grace is sufficient for us. You have things to teach us. You have words for us to claim. You have promises for us to embrace. You have a love for us to just be enveloped in and and to trust you in. And so I pray life flow as we close out our time, our time of giving and our closing song. I ask that you would be just honored even in these closing minutes and then help us to walk out with more courage than we came in with and to take that into our real world to represent you imperfectly but sincerely to the best of our ability and where we lack, you would be able to help us to do it better.
This is what we ask. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.